Welcome to What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor. This podcast is provided by the Wellness and Health Action Team, also known as WHAT, from Portland State University's Center for Student Health and Counseling, or SHAC. We're located in the old tutoring center suite on the third floor of the University Center building on campus. Our purpose with this podcast is to discuss a variety of health-related topics in a way that will be accessible for our non-traditional campus. My name is Grace, and my pronouns are she, her. My name is Quinn, and my pronouns are he, him. And my name is Julie, and my pronouns are she, her. We're all members of the Wellness and Health Action Team, and we'll be the hosts for this podcast, so let's get into it. All right, good morning, everyone. This is one of your hosts, Julie. I hope everyone's doing great. How are you doing, Grace? Hi, everybody. Um, I'm doing good. Yeah. yeah. How are you doing, Julie? (laughs) I'm also doing great as well. I'm actually very excited for today's episode because we're going to be talking about one of my greatest interests, which is public health and especially health disparities. And it's also um, in our wheelhouse, Grace, we're both public health geeks. So I'm really excited (laughs) for us to talk about it. And most excitingly, we have a wonderful guest today from the OHSU PSU School of Public Health. We have Christina Yaderholm. Dr. Yaderholm, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Hey, Julie, and hi, Grace. I am so happy to be here with you. Um, so yes, my name is Christina, and I am a doctoral student in, within the School of Public Health um, and also an adjunct instructor. I teach um, undergraduate intro to public health, and then I do my research work. Um, so hopefully, hopefully I can share some of, of both what I work on currently, but also some of the disparities that um, we see within within public health, and particularly, I think today we're going to touch on maternal child health. Yeah, that's great. Um, if you don't mind, can you talk a little bit of your background and kind of the academic journey and what you are researching? Absolutely. Um, so my background is I I grew up in Denmark, um, and I have a degree as a chiropractor from Denmark, where I did both my undergrad and my graduate studies. And then I came to the U.S. for an internship and, and got stuck in Portland. And I have practiced here as a chiropractor. I did mostly um, pediatric maternal child um, chiropractic, which is a lot of developmental uh, child developmental work. And at some point along the way, I started to see these differences, disparities in health, the access to resources, um, the access to care, and it just piqued my interest. And at the same time, I just, I've always been a little bit nerdy. So it's like, it, it felt right to go back to school again. I was really excited to come back um, and started my journey. I thought to go into medicine. And so I did my pre-health and, and I had two children at this point. And so I was trying to keep it all straight. And then I realized that maybe this was not in the cards for me. At that time, I also met um, Dr. Kara Eckhart, who talked to me about the PhD track, and it just felt like a good fit. And so I applied for that. And so here I am, um, almost four years later. <laughs> it's been quite a journey for you, but that sounds great. And we're all very excited for you. Um, and so what are we going to be talking about today? for our podcast. So what are some of the topics we'll be covering? Um, So I would love to talk to you about some of the health disparities that exist within maternal child health. And when we say disparity, it's a difference between groups and a different that is unjust um, because it's set up by systems. And so I think that's the main overarching issue and we'll see where the conversation takes us. I mostly do my research work right now um, in rural Oregon. So I work with the, with OHSU's um, community research hub in Bend, but it covers most of the rural counties around Oregon. So a lot of our projects is to look at why why are um, people who become pregnant or have um, the capacity to become pregnant in rural areas sometimes worse off than um, than people that become pregnant in more metro, um, metropolitan or, or urban areas. Well, thank you so much for kind of giving us a little overview, Dr. Yaderholm. Um, so I guess like my next question would probably be, be like, what are the different areas of maternal health? Like we know that there's health disparities 
um, between rural and metropolitan or urban areas, but what are the different areas within maternal health where health disparities occur? Yeah, um, a lot of it starts before somebody becomes pregnant. And so there is a lot of differences between access access to health promoting means. Um, and in, in our rural areas, and I'm talking mostly specifically about Oregon, um, but it does reflect largely on the US in general, but um, because, because of um, industries that is, is going away or migration patterns, we, we create environments that <clears throat> can't, that doesn't have um, the work, the job market to support um, a steady income always or a high income. And then we also have, and this is across time, we have um, just lower emphasis or lower um, educational attainment in, in rural areas. And those are both what we call social determinants of health. And then there's the access to care. And so even before somebody becomes pregnant, um, they might have further to go. They may not have the care they need or the specialty they need within reach. Um, and then they become pregnant. And that's when we see again, like we already have this baseline difference between living closer to um, services, living closer to um, support systems and just having more access to health promoting mean better food. Um, and then somebody becomes pregnant and now it's even harder to get into prenatal care, having it within reach. We know that um, women or I should, um, pregnant persons in rural areas often have to drive much further. They have maybe 30 to a uh, minute's drive to an hour to get to the nearest general prenatal care. Um, and if they need specialty care, it could be hours away. So that's sort of, that's sort of some of this, the things that already predicts before we get to the full pregnancy and then the birth outcomes and the child. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into it. And I feel like a lot of people just assume someone gets pregnant and then they're pregnant and that's that, but there's like so many other layers to it. Um, and I really like what you have to say about just like access to care because having a healthy pregnancy, a large part of it is having access to postpartum care or neonatal care, like all this stuff, like prenatal care. Um, so yeah. if you're not, if you're having to go like anyone could probably drive 20 minutes to the doctor, but, or like even further, but it's more so like that's 20 minutes off of work, 20 minutes to get there. It's just like so many different like layers to it that like, it's really not accessible to get to the doctor at all. Um, no. And if you especially have a when it's far away too. Exactly. If you have a complicated pregnancy and you need yeah. to go to maybe the care you need is in Portland and that is three hours yeah. away on top of having a complication, mm -hmm. which could make your body or your mind not feel great. It is scary. Um, yeah. And so it's just this added burden when you yeah. live. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, and then I'm wondering about what, like why we compare rural and urban maternal health. Like we know that there's disparities between them, but why is it important to kind of compare them? It's, it's important to understand whenever we have groups of people who have a distribution. So you can compare the two, a distribution of health that is different from the other because we know something is going on. And most likely, in most cases, when we do this work, we see that we can fix it. It didn't just come about, right? We have some kind of inequality that leads to it. And it's not fair to have some people have a larger burden of poor health or disease. And so we have to take a step back and say, how did this come about? If you choose to live in a rural area, um, does that have to come with, with, not for the individual necessarily poor health, but for a population? And we have in Oregon, some of our larger, we call it subpopulations. We have a lot of uh, seasonal migrant workers and the, the largest part of the, um, our indigenous people also live in rural areas. And so that further um, exacerbate that we have inequality. And now that is, is put on 
groups of people who is already carrying a historic larger burden um, of oppression and which leads to poor, poor health. So that's, that's sort of the, the main reason why it's important to understand these differences. Yeah, totally. And um, also just like the divide between economic class as well. Um, and it's like so many different, again, layers, like social determinants of health is just a multifaceted topic and we could talk about it for hours. Um, <laughs> but I think it is interesting to look at it through the lens of maternal health because your health starts when you're a baby, like in your mom's womb and stuff. Uh, so like, or I think when we were talking um, a few weeks ago about how health kind of starts when you're a baby and like what the person carrying you does during that pregnancy and if they don't have correct care or if they don't have access to adequate care, then it can also affect you. Um, which I think is just mind blowing. I mean, it, it makes sense to me, but it's just like, it's crazy that that is everything is like butterfly effect to ripple effect. Yeah. I think you really nailed that. Um, because we all had a childhood. If we are grown ups who talk like the three of us right now, we had a childhood and we were also at some point a fetus. Um, and half the population is, is have the capacity to become pregnant. So this is a pretty big area. Right. It affects us all and and how our health is determined from even before we were born, but especially that time as fetal growth and the first couple of years of health are sorry of life. And um, because that's where the largest neurological, the, lar the brain development really takes place and takes off. And so any any insults to brain development at that point. Exactly, like the nutritional status of um, the person carrying out the pregnant person, um, the the quality of the air that they breathe, um, and the access to a stress-free environment or or fairly stress-free environment, <laughs> um, all those things is how we're born, right? You hear this analogy about the the cards we're dealt and how they're played, but this is the cards we're dealt. That's how we're born into this world, and then from there on it is the environment in which we can play our cards, right? It, that becomes a lot, um, really important. Yeah, I think that's really crucial point um, that both of y'all brought up. It's kind of like a domino effect. And I feel like in society, we normally kind of just encapsulate one moment and we think that, oh, it's, it only affects the infant when it comes out of the womb. But like what you said, Dr. Home, it's like when the baby is in the womb or the infant's in the womb. And that's when we need to consider the care and how care is being delivered to the pregnant individual. Um, and I feel like we don't recognize that as much as we're supposed to. Um, so I think that's a really great point that you brought up. Um, and so moving on to kind of like population. So would you like to tell us about like who are the centered population versus with those in the quote unquote marginalized? And I think this is when it comes to that contentious uh, discussion about using the term marginalized, because as we all know, in the public health field, we're kind of wanting to strive away from that term because it kind of um, sets up a norm and stereotype different populations. So would you like to talk a little bit about that? Yeah, yeah, so exactly. When we start to talk about population health and subpopulation health, um, we have this tendency to talk about the minorities and the majority and the marginalized. And um, even though they are great descriptors for creating this, what we can call a cognitive frame for understanding something, they also uphold that same system, that same notion that, oh, some people, first of all, they are in contrast to the majority, the sort of the middle people, the norm. Um, and, and that places them in this weird juxtaposition, we can say, and that's not fair. That's, that's not actually considering health for that group. Um, and so instead of, instead of talking about the marginalized as again, as almost like, oh, that's just how it is. That's just how it came about. That's not true, right? There was a system in place that made some people um, almost invisible from this as if they're outside the rest 
and I'm going to say us, and that is not meant as now I belong in this and there's other people out there, um, but I have white skin and often we talk about um, subpopulation in terms of skin color and racial differences. And so instead of using these, these terms, and I will have to admit, I from here on, I might move out in a little bit of like a um, thinner ice because this is not my place to make up the language we should use. But I think it's really important to consider that when we use marginalized language, we completely omit why that was. So instead we can say people who are subject to oppression um, or powerful people <laughs> who, and I'm taking this from someone who is smarter than me and who has written a lot of this stuff. <laughs> I'm not making it up on the fly. I wanna make that very clear. Um, but, but just starting using language where we understand why some groups are positioned somewhere um, mm -hmm but also not making a margin, right? It shouldn't mm -hmm. be, a, it almost makes you think about a side note, right? You write in the margin of a piece of paper, the marginalized, and I know it has a different, we understand it differently more mathematically, but, but that's the cognitive frame we create. And that's that we should center everybody, right? This idea of centering <laughs> that excludes somebody and everybody should be in the focus, everybody should be included and considered. I think that's a really good point and that when we're using terms or oppressive languages such as marginalized or just BIPOC people of color um, communities, I feel like we're kind of categorizing them and putting them under the same umbrella, which is definitely not wrong. Because if you're using kind of term like, I guess, all size fit all, like that's not how it is right now. And when we're using terms or languages such as marginalization and underserved communities, we're kind of just categorizing them under the same umbrella. And that kind of leads us to the next point, which is like about equity. When we're talking about health equity, what is to say about equity and the concept of fairness? Because in my opinion, when we're using those words, we're not really tailoring or like calibrating things that each individual needs. And we're just kind of like, oh, I think you need this and the rest of the community population needs that. But that's not really the case, right? Exactly. Um, so equity is this understanding um, that we, we don't all need the same, we don't have the same needs. We don't all need the same um, tool to get the same work done. That's not how it works. Like if you already, um, there's this great picture that I think a lot of us is familiar with, three people trying to look over the fence to watch a baseball game. And one is taller and one is shorter. And if we gave each a, a step stool that wasn't tall enough, the person who's still not tall enough to look over is still not tall enough even with a step stool. And the tall person just got taller. Right. They just were able to look stand even further up. And so but the equity is if we gave the person who is not tall enough to look over the fence, both both step stools, both or boxes to stand on, both people can look over the fence. Um, now we can discuss why they're not at the baseball game, but they probably didn't have tickets. But the but the idea is that not everybody need, needs the same um, instruments or the same help to get to, to the good health. Um, and this is certainly based in these, like the oppression and the systems that some people have over time, over generations accumulated a ton more burdens and barriers to good health, to economic prosperity. Um, and so they need other things than somebody who hasn't met those barriers. Yeah, that's really good. And like we've mentioned before, this system that we're in is kind of like this capitalistic white supremacy um, based. And so for us to realize that and kind of um, hoping we can eradicate such system by kind of implementing that equity um, standpoint for everyone and just not like, like we said, equality for all, like use a really good example for that. Right. Yeah. Because equality for all just kind of assumes we're all starting at the same place. Yeah. And again, the, the starting point, if we don't, if we all starting from different places, we probably won't reach the finish line at the same time either. Um, and so that's just a very important concept to understand that um, you can't, you can't suppress or oppress a group of people 
and then at a certain point say, oh, okay, we're just going to give you all, you're all going to be in the race now, but because we didn't give you shoes and other people have shoes, it's fair. You're all in the race now. It's not fair, right? When somebody needs shoes before they can race. Yeah, exactly. And, and I feel like um, in America, if we're just talking about like the United States itself, um, this idea of equality is very much like, oh, just pull yourself up by the bootstraps. Like you can do it. Like it's the American dream. And that's such an ignorant and just like flat out wrong thing to say to people when you're talking about equity, because like you said, not everyone starts at the same spot. Um and to have this notion in your head, like, oh, well, I, I grew up and I like pulled my bootstraps up and I made it work. And it's like, okay, you made it work. And you're also a white cis straight man. Like it's not the same mm -hmm. if you were to tell that to like a black woman who lives in under the poverty line or something like that. Like there's so many layers and there's so many, um, barriers to that differ for every single person. So an, an equality lens is not anything helpful when you are discussing an equitable lens, I think. Yeah, like the whole idea of the American dream. I'm just it's like, I'm sorry, it, but it's it bullshit. It is because there are so many studies <laughs> saying that if you were, for example, like what Grace said, if you're comparing an African-American woman coming from a family that experiences poverty, there are chances of I don't know, acquiring a master's degree is so much less than a white cis man that comes from, I don't know, a working class family, I, like the lowest working class family. There's such a huge difference. Yeah. And that kind of brings us back about equality. Like the chances right. of them reaching to the same point is huge. It's drastically huge, like comparing the two. And so, yeah, yeah I just wanted and to it put that out there. No, I love it, Julie. And it begs the question, why is it we have this tale about the American dream? Because I can tell you where I'm from. It's not a story we tell. It's not a necessary story to tell because nobody has to, you know, quote unquote, pull themselves up, get mm -hmm. through this, um, you know, work through all these um, items or issues that is coming their way or problems and barriers. Um, it's when you have a much more equal society, you don't need to tell the stories about yeah, racing exactly. from nothing. Mm -hmm, <laughs> yeah, sure. totally. Um, but yeah, it 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 is. It's important that we keep that we keep you know reminding everybody in public health. I think we all got it down, and and we and we talk to each other almost in this code when we say equity, and people know what we mean. But explaining it this way again and again um, is helpful. I think the, like the concept of fairness is just like in and of itself, just so un unfair, like, un like fairness in the capitalist society, like the United States just doesn't exist. Like you, the United States was literally built on unfairness and yeah. inequality. So unless I, I don't really see a way That's that we reason. can like have this huge drastic shift towards equitable futures. Right. It's a good point. Um, and for some reason, it is so much easier to explain equality and fairness in terms yeah. of reciprocity. Like, I, I, I've got this, now I have to give this, or I paid this, now I need something in return. Right. This is like the fair, and it's the fairness we teach children from the get-go. Right. This, this concept is so much easier to understand. The equity as a fairness concept is yeah. much harder to explain. And it's not really part of our, what we call our cognitive frame. It's not mm -hmm. really part of what, how we understand it. And um, I know work done by um, the fabulous Dr. Vinette, who is, um, who is in the School of Public Health, also points towards that when, when we say fairness, we can have the reciprocal idea, but, but if only half of people can understand the equity it's really hard to talk to each other. And the equity idea is, oh, but you need something, we will fulfill that need. That seems fair. That side of fairness, the equity, is so much harder to describe and understand. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. I think it's also just because everyone is kind of taught that there's a basis of fairness 
the minute they're born and then it kind of just gets ingrained in our heads that like we're all kind of fair like we're all kind of equal because it's always preached in that way like you don't like everyone is equal like da 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 which like doesn't help the fact that there's inequality everywhere (laughs) literally and I also think sometimes it's there's a part of it that is just being human right we do some work we accomplish something and we pat Mm -hmm. ourselves on the back right (laughs) I do that too I'm like wow and then I look around me and it's very easy to to go to well can't everybody why can't everybody do this or why didn't they Mm -hmm. do that like how come and and so we we kind of get I think we get very wound up with our own accomplishments as such mm-hmm. hard work and exactly forget where yeah. we started where we exactly. started from yeah mm-hmm. and I, I think that's why it's important that everyone kind of has that public health lens like we're all in public health so it's easy for us to see things like through public health lens but I'm sure there's so many concepts that pertain to public health and that you wouldn't necessarily define as a public health lens but again because it's public health it affects everything um so if I feel like it would be cool if people had the words to understand um equitable practices and public health like if it was just kind of normalized vocabulary yes I would love that and yeah (laughs) and, and part of it this is going to be a little bit of my opinion and argument yeah. and not so much um, something that I can back. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of the equity language is tied up in interconnectedness that we understand that is what what's better for an individual is better for everybody. Um, and so meeting needs and seeing that needs have to be met, even if you don't get the same thing, is part of being interconnected, is part of that social fabric that, that connects us. And and if we don't have that understanding of interconnectedness, mm-hmm. equity seems really, really hard because all you see is, yeah. but, but they got something I didn't. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think it also takes a lot of um, understanding on a personal level to see where your privileges are and where, I guess, just your privileges are. Like, it takes a lot out of someone to recognize that if they're still in that mindset of equality and fairness and da 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 like because it just is missing so many different light like fairness and equality is missing so much that equity equity has going for it you know like equity is like the hot cousin and like inequality is like the like weird like not explain that's it. a good example grace, good example, grace. <laughs> it's just like uh, that just, is amazing so, it's like more um I don't know. It's just today. Yeah. yeah. Anyways, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but no, I think that's great. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So we're going to switch gears a little bit to go back to what you were talking about in your own studies, Dr. Yader home. So I wanted to ask like, what kind of statistics stood out to you when you were studying maternal health and like what kind of stuff really caught your eye in terms of these numbers and what they were indicating. Right. A lot of, and this is the, the things that we talk about within maternal child health in general, but what really stood out to me is the large discrepancy we have between racial um, mortality rates, both for the pregnant person and for the infant. And we know that indigenous, um, indigenous pregnant people and indigenous infant infants die at a much higher rate, sorry to be blunt, but then then white pregnant people and infants. And the same with black um, pregnant people and infants die at a much higher rate. And it is up to, there's different numbers and different ways to measure this, but it is about two to three times. That's a lot, right? That's a huge difference. And so I think that was what really got me thinking when I entered this field was like, why Why do we see this? A loss of a child or a loss of a person within a community is a huge impact. It is on the direct family. It's a tragedy. It's a huge impact on the immediate family, but also on the community, right? And so we're not, it's not just about that one loss, but a maternal child loss is such a travesty. And, and so that really got me thinking about how sort of the rings in the water 
what that meant and how we can prevent it. And so the thing about when you do research is you want to fix everything you want to you want to fix the world, but you really can only you can only carve out these little slivers at a time. Um, and so part of the work that I'm involved with and doing right now is um, looking at perinatal care coordination and intervention to make sure that the needs are met and particularly for women or pregnant people who need specific services, it can be um, treatment for drug use, drug addiction, or problematic use. Um, it can be specialty services because of a health threat during the pregnancy. Um, and then it can be access to maternal um, mental health, right? All of these can lead to death. And it's important that we have the systems in place to support because women do have children. I should say people have children within communities within society. And so it's important that that community and that society um, has the support systems they need, right? It affects all of us. Again, this, this idea that, that the equity and the interconnectedness, that it is better for everyone. It is better for communities when we can support and when we can help and when we can prevent any mortality. Yeah, those are all very good points. And I like that you brought up the idea of interconnectedness and how those numbers, you know, those lives that we lost kind of affect the whole community as a whole. Um, and speaking of care, we did touch a little bit on kind of the differences when it comes to access of care among the rural and urban communities. Um, I would like if we can talk a little bit more about some of the barriers when it comes to accessing these care for these pregnant people. Um, and I know that we talked a little bit about social determinants, um, but I would like us to emphasize more on other determinants such as language barriers, of course, racism, <laughs> which of course we talked about, um, culture, experiences, and et cetera. So how does that, those factors influences one's access to care? Yeah, so in the area I have worked in for the last couple of years was the Central Oregon language barrier. There's a lot of, um, there's large Spanish speaking communities. And if there's not translation services or just information available in Spanish, that is a huge barrier um, to getting the care you need. And then there's also just having the cultural appropriate care. And that's particularly important um, when it comes to maternal mental health but also in the postpartum care period, because we do carry our culture with us when, and that comes across very strongly or it almost roots us when we have a baby. And so having the support and the culturally appropriate support around us becomes so crucial. And so that is, that is a barrier when it's not there and it is a direct determinant of the health outcomes. Um, and, then, and then we have the distance if you need specialty care again, it also comes in, in, in rural areas, we really don't have the mental health care workforce that we need. We know it's being underserved. We know we don't have um, the staffing that's needed. And so that also means that who, then who gets access to the resources that's there. Um, mm -hmm. And it tends to be people who has better insurance coverage or people who do live in like more densely populated areas, either that's towns or um, just areas where there might be a health provider and not when you live further away. And then it tends to be people who are white and more affluent um, that can access those services. We also know that we have a lack of services for people who identify within the LGBTQIA plus community and they also become pregnant and need the support um, systems. Um, so those are sort of the care components that then adds on um, we have post about 50% of rural people don't ever get a postpartum visit. Um, some get it later. We, we sort of have the measure that within the first six weeks after giving birth is the, is the period that we, that we recommend that there's a postpartum um, visit with a care provider. And that doesn't happen. And it, there's multiple reasons why that doesn't happen, but cultural competent care access to it and the ability to, um, to afford it, which comes with health insurance are, are some of the major factors. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those are really good. And like you said, for me personally, I think language barrier is probably one of the 
biggest component of it. And not everyone has, not to say like have that education, are educated on that level. And I feel like the complexity makes it so much harder um, on top of affordability and competent care and all of that. I feel like which we'll talk about later when it comes to languages in public health. But I feel like if in a way we can use languages and structure it, structuring care in a way that it will be easier to understand, it'll make it easier for people to acquire the proper care that they need and have an understanding of what they need to become healthy and for their child to be healthy as well. Yes. I mean, yes. There is a lot of things we could improve. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> There's a lot of things <laughs> we lot. could improve in the American healthcare delivery and healthcare system. But, but yes, there is some immediate fixes, right? There is some immediate stuff we could do with providing language services um, and access. Um, we also know that in rural areas, about one in three children are growing up in, in poverty. And so that's a much higher rate and that's already a strenuous burden on. And so we kind of backtrack that a little bit. That means that there is a pregnant person giving birth in poverty um, and, and now have to juggle or struggle through that kind of strain. Maybe trying to find a job, not having childcare, right? There's a lot of things too um, in rural areas and, and in urban too, but they just, there's, they add up and there is just a higher burden. This happens much more frequently in a rural area. Yes, so we, um, we talked about a little bit at the beginning about how um, a child's um, health starts at in utero um, and in the carrier carrier's health and that sort of stuff. Um, but I wanted to touch a little bit on adverse childhood experiences or ACEs. Um, so I was wondering if we could talk about that for a little bit and just how um, ACEs have transpired into like, or kind of how they kind of intersect with maternal and child health. Adverse childhood experiences are, um, are experiences that happens within the first 18 years of life. And they have changed a little bit, but they were originally just made to see if they affected health in the long run. And they do include for the most part, child maltreatment. So neglect, abuse, and then um, some of the family dynamic or family functioning items, which is having a parent with um, severe mental health issues or a substance use drugs or alcohol um, misuse problem or if you have a death in the family, sometimes just a sort of the separation can create an adverse experience for a child, whether that is because you have an incarcerated parent, um, a separation of parents. Um, we don't talk about, I just wanna make clear divorce as an adverse childhood experience. It can be, it's often because some of the other items were present um, in that process and not two parents splitting up in itself. Um, but so those, all these experiences, they sit in the body. We say they get under the skin. Um, they sit in the body in, the term, in, in stress responses, in the way we cope um, with personal, um, personal experiences, how we cope with interpersonal interactions. And they follow us through life. And for some people, that means that they follow us into behaviors that is not supporting um, good health. It, it follows into how we relate to other people, our social support system, and a lot of these are social determinants of health. And so that's how the adverse childhood experiences fits in. So any person who has had a, a more, one or more adverse childhood experiences, and when they do accumulate, they have carries a higher risk, um, and they then become pregnant, it may also carry a risk for the mental health health status of that person and, and how they, how that pregnancy is affecting them, right? It's a, it's a big, it's a big thing to grow another human being inside your body. <laughs> um, and so that's where it starts. Then that child is born and whether or not that child is born into some of these factors of either intergenerational poverty or or having a social environment that's not supportive of child development, 
then we start to see now we might create more ACEs in the next generation. And so there is this intergenerational um, link between ACEs. And we have to understand it in the context, uh, context of the, the community and the society around them too. That is not just a one-to-one -one hand-me-down, right? People have, people have children within communities, within societies. Um, but there is most certainly some of these stress and coping mechanisms that is part of it too. Absolutely. Um, thank you for going over that. I think uh, ACEs is kind of, again, public health lingo. Like nobody, nobody's yes. walking around and being like, oh yes, this will definitely affect me later in my ACEs test. Like no <laughs> person who's not in public health is gonna know that. Um, so, yeah, but also just the fact that everything kind of starts at the beginning of maternal health. And like you said, there's that intergenerational trauma and the DNA that gets passed down is very real. Um, right. And, and the mother's yeah. stress response or the pregnant person's mm -hmm. stress response when, um, when they're carrying their baby, right? Mm -hmm. If that goes through the roof often, then that baby is exposed to much more cortisol, which is mm -hmm. our stress hormone. And some is necessary. Too much might come, you know, they might be born a little bit too early, a little with oh, a lower okay. weight, right? Yeah. We see these, what we call the birth outcomes. So how the, mm -hmm. how healthy, um, either how healthy the child is born or with the predictors of health later. <laughs> so okay, yeah. being, being born, being born before term, being born at a lower weight carries some health risk down the line. Um, and so when we start to see these patterns, it kind of explains how, again, these ACEs, and we can also just, we can call it trauma, but how it accumulates. Yeah, and I feel like what we're talking about, the stress part is so important. I remember watching a video from class saying how if a mother was too stressed, it kind of sends a signal to the womb that it's no longer a safe place for the infant to reside. And that's like you mentioned, um, preterm, was it pre- term birth I think yep. and like lower weight um outcomes and stuff which is like it will lead on to um, of course like relates to ACE, aces and all but just that's how important it is when it comes to the experience of like before the child is born and that kind of blows my mind because I didn't think of how crucial it is for just like the emotional and mental health of a mother um when it comes to the overall health of their child yeah, right. And and having to take care of this new person in your life, and maybe you're dealing with a lot of stuff on your own. And I think a lot of a lot of people, including myself, who are studying ACEs or studying trauma and how it affects um, a pregnant person, has some experience with it and understand how these coping mechanisms work and how these and the stress response of it. And so. <laughs> taking care of a new a new person and dealing with your own stuff is a lot it definitely is a lot um but yeah for us to that was a really great conversation Dr. A. Holmes so for us to wrap it up we kind of wanted to step back and look at the overall pictures and like you said there are many things that we can change in the public health field there's so much improvements that need to be done that need to be made but yeah. first of all we wanted to touch a little bit on like that media and language usage so what are some kind of phrases we should move away or some of the words that we need to know for individuals to have a better understanding of like maternal health, infant health on that behalf. Right. We have, the more we know all the stuff we talked about, the more we know about how um, prenatal life affect the child, their birth weight and, and, and at what time they're born, how they affect long-term health outcomes. And we, I mapped it onto a lot of mental health and stress um, but that's translated into heart, cardiovascular disease, heart disease. It translates into cancer rates, diabetes. It translates into all these other um, diseases down the road and that we know is connected to, um, to stress and to the behaviors that we have through the lifetime. And so now I'm trying to wheel this all the way back. And so <laughs> the more we know about this, the easier it is to say, oh, then we should put these rules in place for the pregnant person oh, this is how pregnant people should behave. And that's not really helpful, right? 
we can mm-hmm. easily get into a, poli- a blaming and policing situation about pregnant bodies. Yeah. <laughs> how, 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 women, how people should conduct themselves when they become pregnant and also how they should conduct themselves when they, when they have their baby. Um, and so I think uh, framing this in a way where we really do understand that things happen within context, it happens within circumstances and see that, oh, women do become pregnant within these circumstances, how can we support them, right? They entered into their pregnancy with this mental state, with these ACEs, um, with this drug issue, with, um, with this financial situation. That's how they entered, right? Having that and then seeing the pregnancy instead of saying, oh, a pregnant person who lives in poverty. No, it's people who live in poverty, poverty also becomes pregnant. That's an important shift. Um, people who are using drugs also becomes pregnant. That's an important shift. And so we start to see that it's, it's not that, that we have to focus directly on the individual. We have to focus on the environment that creates poverty, that creates ACEs, drug use. Because um, there's, there's many factors there that we then all of a sudden go to in our mind and frame. I literally am like speechless. That was like perfect. (laughs) Just the way you put it. And us looking at pregnant people and that population as a whole. Like, I really like that you said, we need to consider the fact that, for example, like you mentioned, like drug users also get pregnant, not pregnant person using drugs. Like we need to. Right. It is, it is rare that you become pregnant. And at that point say, maybe I should try those drugs. Yeah. That's not really how it happens. It also doesn't happen that you become pregnant and you're like, you know what? I just don't have the money for this. I just spend them wrong this month. That is not how things happen. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. Um, and that kind of leads us to like how to make care more accessible for individuals who are pregnant. We like have reframed the languages and kind of how we can approach those situations. So in that term, how can we make it more accessible for these individuals in anywhere, like regarding if it's in the metropolitan or rural communities? Right. Part of it and what is sort of my 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 side gig right now, and I hope to turn into my research is media advocacy. I think it's it's fascinating. It is a field. (laughs) It is a field that looks at how the media portrays some of these issues. So it might not be oriented directly to public health people, but when we can get a larger part of the population on board with some of these ideas, we might move policy along a little bit easier. Um, we might actually move policy along. And so, and so media advocacy is a way to see if we can get journalists and media outlets and also public health professionals who speaks to the population to frame issues a little bit differently and not whenever we set up a problem, the human mind goes to what's the solution? I want to come up with a solution to this, right? And so when we set up the problem as being with the individual, the solution naturally follows to lay with the individual. And it doesn't mean that we can't do things that is more oriented towards individual behaviors, but as public health professionals and practitioners, we really want to look at those larger pictures. Um, And so when we try and place a problem within a larger context, within a community, within a society and understand all these structures and forces that we talked about that goes into um, who has and who has not, <laughs> then, then we might see an issue with, oh, how about we try and fix that? Could we distribute the goods, the materials, the money a little bit differently? Right? That could solve a lot of issues downstream. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, that those are all very great points. And there's, like I've said, and like we all said throughout this whole podcast, there are many things that we can do. Um, and it's really important for us to focus on what the needs are in these communities and how to alleviate the stress and the pressure that is applied upon individuals in those communities. Um, and so, yeah, those are all very good points. And I hope our listeners learned a lot about maternal and uh, infant child care um, in this episode. But yeah, that's all we have for today. Is there anything else you would like to add, Dr. Uh, Yederholm or Grace? 
this was a great conversation. I am so happy that you're focusing on this. Um, I, I hope we piqued somebody's interest. We, I mean, we need everybody in public health. We need all <laughs> backgrounds. We need all experiences, right? If we don't have everybody's to tell, you know, to share their experience, we need all the voices, all the experience at the table, because otherwise we can't move this forward in a good way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. So I hope somebody, I hope somebody felt inspired to step into public health after this. Yes, public health. Yes, we love yes. public health. <laughs> We're, it's the better of everyone. So yeah, go public health. <laughs> all right. All well, right. Well, perfect. thank you so much, everybody. Thanks, Julie. And thank you, Dr. Gatorholm, for letting us pick your brain for a bit. It was lovely to have a conversation with you. Yeah. My pleasure. Yes. Well, all right. Thank you. Well, I'll see everyone later. Bye. 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 We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the What's Up podcast. We'll catch up with you next week. We at Shack are fully committed to the physical and emotional health and wellness of PSU students. Please call ahead to use our health services for flu shots, free COVID testing, or general appointments at 503-725-2800. Counseling services are still available via telehealth, and you can schedule your appointments by calling that same number at 503-725-2800. If you're looking for more health and wellness resources, you can check out our online health magazine that gets sent to your pdx.edu email every Wednesday, or you can download the CampusWell app. Also, feel free to check out the Virtual Mind Spa experience to rest, relax, and rejuvenate wherever you have internet access. We will be including resources links in the episode description as well as a link to the episode transcript. If you have any questions about health, wellness, shack, or anything we discussed in this podcast, please fill out the Google form in the episode description. Thanks for listening and take care. We'll see you next week on What's Up, Wellness from the Third Floor.